0: another episode of all over Voice voiceover with kiff vh i'm your host kiff vh and uh at long last uh my friend and fellow voice actor and uh comedian
1: uh yeah we'll, sometimes we'll
0: go into we'll go into all the things that you do sure. uh the lovely the talented chris Edgerly. chris thank, thank you. you so much for being here thank man. you
1: for being patient because we were supposed to do this last week and yeah, it works out great. happens and yeah it works out great did you, you have, nearby.
0: I mean, I'm, obviously you're, I know you're probably living under an NDA. Have you, have, uh, did you have a good time doing what you had to do?
1: Yeah, it's, it's for a video game and it's, it's going, it's going to be performance capture. So I had to go for a fitting. So I lived in your on-camera world briefly.
0: Have you done, have you done PC before? PC, yeah, but it's been, capture.
1: yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. What and was the, so, what was the
0: job that you did? Do
1: you remember? The job I did before, I think was, called resistance fall of man or something that was with nolan north Uh uh-huh and before nolan blew up huge yeah we were just busy making jokes all the time and he had this jerry lansing character and after every take all right uh cut let's take and um all right go ahead and um t-pose you know because you have to do your t-pose yeah and he would break into jerry lansing you know Jerry Lansing never does T poses; he only does Y poses, or whatever it is he would do. And the director was as, he had exhausted the director's patience with it, but we thought it was hysterical, hysterical. And that was before he became Drake, you know, Nathan yeah. Drake and before all that. Uncharged I just thought series, yeah. this is really funny. And then he ends up doing this Jerry Lansing character on uh, *Con Man*.
0: Oh I think. man, uh,
1: yeah, Alan Tudyk series. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it just this little thing he would riff with suddenly becomes a character. Yeah, that was the last time I did performance capture. Wow. Yeah, before Nolan North was Nathan
0: Drake. That was the last. I was in that same same time period. I did motion right. capture on Midnight Club Three Dub Edition, which wow. dropped in two
1: thousand three. Okay,
0: I think I did that in um, at Rockstar in New yeah. York. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Something I think like I, I did a couple days. of performance capture jobs, and you know, I you know I tell you, you, you have a theater background, yeah. right? Yeah. It's theater in the round. That's the best way to describe it. People say, "What's it like?" It's like, have you ever done theater? Yes. Have you done theater in the round? Not everyone has, hmm. but that's what it is. The audience sits all the way around you. Yeah. You have to be aware of every angle of your body, and that's you're on the level that you know the, basically the set, and the cameras are everywhere, yeah. and they just capture everything. So that's all it is. That's truly it's it. That you're wearing you're wearing um, you know little reflectors all over
0: your yeah. body. Once you get past the little dots on your face and the reflectors yeah. and. Everybody yeah. dressed the same, but that's that's also like theater in the round. You're, mm-hmm. It's like you're doing '60s, you know, uh, black box Macbeth, and you're all wearing black turtlenecks and funny
1: yeah, hats. Exactly. I think the last time Shakespeare was actually done in its period was the first time. After that, people said, "I'm going to make it in the 1900s during the the gay '90s. How about that? I, it's this is Macbeth, but it's on board the Titanic. That's my vision. That's right. Yeah. How did you? Where? Well, where, where are you from originally? Are you? I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, Georgia? Deep South. I don't have the accent anymore, just I gradually lost it. I had it when I was a teenager. It's pretty thick, too. How did you... Well, well, I just didn't try to lose it. I just... uh, All right, yeah, so here's the timeline. Born in Maryland, Silver Spring, Maryland. And then when I was two, parents parted ways. And mom and her three boys went down to Savannah, Georgia, where her parents lived, where she grew up. Okay. And so I grew up there. And then went to, let's see, went to a local college and then went to University of Georgia for my third and fourth year. Okay. And that's where I discovered stand-up comedy because probably like you, you're always cracking up your friends. You're always performing. And yep. thing is, I hardly ever did the school plays when I was younger. Like I did them because we all had to do them, yeah. but I was never the lead. I was never the class clown. I was, you know, a bit shyer then. Yeah. But as I came out of my shell more... My friends would tell me, you should do stand-up. You're always doing these voices. Uh So I tried stand-up at University of Georgia in 1990, October of 90. So it's been 29 years, although the last couple of years, I haven't done it very much, Uh hardly at all. But that got me started. Plus, I was a drama minor at Georgia. Really? Yeah, because I transferred from Armstrong State College, which is now, it became some other college. But I transferred from a local college. I had 90 credit hours. They were on the quarter system. So you get 45 credit hours a year. Mm-hmm. I go up to University of Georgia as a junior, and I don't even know what my major is going to be. Yeah. But I thought, you know what? I like this acting stuff, so let me let me go to the drama department. And I met with the drama advisor, and they said, your transcript has 90 hours. We will accept 30 of them. And I said... What does that mean? He says, you have to retake the other 60 hours.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: So I said, all right, well, I'll see you later. Yeah. And I literally crossed the street to the journalism building, sat down, and they said, oh, we'll take all 90. And I said, oh, well, I'm a journalism major. <laughs> and I became a drama minor. Like, as a drama minor, you were allowed to take a couple of more than just core classes. Yeah. But then that was it. They wouldn't let you take any more. So I took everything they would let me take, and I, I got see. into a play. It was a Shakespeare play, and I got kicked out of it. <laughs> what? But I'd missed a rehearsal. Ah. Yeah. And that was it. He made an example of uh-huh. me. I was very upset about that because I thought, because this was, I was in a drama set class, like a uh, class on scenery. Yeah. And uh, there was this cute girl in the class that I wanted to impress. Mm-hmm. And we had to see the play that I was going to be in. As part of the school project or oh, a class man. project. And I thought, and I was telling the whole class, you know, I'm in this play. I'm in this play. And then one day, suddenly, Edgerly's not talking about the play so much. <laughs> right. So then we all had to go see the play that I was kicked out of. Needless to say, I did not impress them. <laughs> did not impress her at
0: all. Oh, man.
1: Yeah. The play was good, though. They did a good job with what it. What was the show? It was Measure for Measure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I they, they did a really good job with it, I thought. And, um, yeah, you know, and then I did a theater in the round, you know, uh, it yeah. was a play called the Gordian knot. Oh yeah. And you know the play? Uh, I know of it. Okay. It's just a three character play. Okay. It's really simple. It's just two bumbling rednecks who are supposed to watch a bar at night, stumble across a guy who tried to break into the bar and got his leg caught in a floorboard and he, they're stuck there all night. And if they let the cops show up, They'll, you know, it'll be exposed the fact that they let a burglar in, and they'll get fired. Yeah. And the burglar doesn't want to get caught either, but they they can't get him out. They have to figure out how to solve it. And so <laughs> that was my theater in the round experience. And we only had one performance because it was a student play. Yeah. So there's a student director. I got to. I think that was the first audition I ever, like, uh, like in school that I went out for and booked, or I can't even remember. But, yeah. but we did the play. And then somehow we all managed to forget the exact same block of dialogue, like almost an entire third of act of, I think, act two, or it might just be a one act play. Almost a third of the dialogue we all collectively forgot and just jumped forward and no one in the audience picked it up. It just apparently it still made just enough sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just everyone just got out about fifteen minutes. Uh, yeah, earlier. exactly.
1: And the and the director was uh, was like, oh, okay, we kind of dodged that bullet, but yeah. all right, it worked. Yeah, all right. So oh, yeah, man. yeah. So that's that was my early performing, and then I tried stand up, and that went really well. And then what I... uh, what
0: was the was it like an open mic thing, or did you, was there a class that you took? You just kind of like screw it, I'm going to give this a shot.
1: Right. It was kind of like. Um... I had, uh, my senior year, you could finally live off campus, and so I had three roommates in these college apartments, and one of my roommates came home, and he said, hey, one of these guys in my class is part of the stand-up club, because you know all these social clubs in college? Yeah. They actually had a stand-up comedy club, not a brick-and-mortar club, but just a group of guys. Yeah. So they would all get together, and they found this pizza place that had a basement, and they would have bands play, and once a month, they would let the comics have a show. And so they said, uh, my buddy said, hey, they're all going to meet tonight. You should go meet with them. And uh, maybe you could do stand-up because they're doing a show tomorrow night. And I thought, okay. And so I went down there and met with the guys. I said, yeah, you can go up tomorrow night. And for acting class, I had already done a bunch of impressions for, like, one okay. of my quote-unquote monologues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just turned it into a stand-up bit. That was... Mm. Yeah. So I kind of did the same thing, and it did really well, and then I started doing it occasionally with these guys. So you were doing
0: impressions-based, not impressions-based stuff, but, like, that was your way in. It was in very as, heavy, as, yeah. Yeah, like yeah, same. I
1: had bits, but voices were, like, my my safety, yeah. you know, that, that was my... My cord I would pull if the act wasn't working. Yep. I'd pull that parachute would open. Suddenly I had him laughing.
0: Yeah. And you can do a solid three minutes. One thing leads into another. Yeah, You're exactly. there. Or exactly. were you doing like celebrity impressions? You're doing cartoons or a combination? It was or all was of that? it.
1: And the funny thing was I was doing Simpson impressions because this was in 1990. The show had just hit. I was watching the show in 89 when it premiered at Christmas time. I watched it at home. Then I went back up <laughs> right. to University of Georgia and from nineteen ninety on, we would watch it in the dorm, like the, the common room in the dorm in nineteen ninety. Yep. Yeah. And I then was,
0: I was in college at the exact same time doing that exact thing. Yeah. We would all get in the college into the dorm yep. basement and watch The Simpsons and yep. Twenty One Jump Street.
1: Yep. We'd watch yeah, because it would be The Simpsons, married with children, then yep. Twenty One Jump Street. That's- and like right <laughs> around the time The Simpsons was ending, my pizza would show up. It's like oh pizza guy's here. Pizza and chicken wings. You know, and you're 21 years old, so you're not going to gain any weight from that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you just, yeah, pizza, chicken wings, ravioli out of a can, Simpsons. Cookie dough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cookie dough. Yeah. 21 Jump Street. And then I think uh, Booker. After yeah, that, that's right. you remember, Booker. Booker. Yeah. Is that Richard Greco? Was that Richard Greco Scho- yeah. 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 You could probably get him on this. I might. Yeah. In fact, he's coming on later. <laughs> there you go. I'd reach out. I'd reach out. But, I yeah. mean, to be cut to... I know.
0: You know? Well, let's not cut to yet. Um All right, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. That, so yeah. um so so you begin your stand up career in college. And yeah. just just as a footnote, like yeah. the the I experienced a similar thing with improv. That was how I got into improv too. And it right. was it was the the yeah, you know, what the hell sort of vibe of college. Sure. That that I never would have thought would be the thing that was blowing my sails for the rest of my life, career. But, but like probably
1: pretty early on, you realized it, you yeah. know, maybe after that first laugh, even. Oh. I mean, it's that's heroin right there. 100%. And it's hard to match that. I agree. In fact, I don't believe that it can be matched. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, like you say, you go on It's like, yeah, OK, why not? I'll try this. It's been in the back of my mind. Yeah. And the next thing you know, that's all you want to do. Oh yeah, so you
0: get done with college, you graduate, you have your theater minor, your journalism major, right? And but at this point, you've been waited
1: tables the... to answer your. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did. I waited tables. That's I'm what we all did. Yeah, yeah. Um, I went back home, uh-huh. and I thought, all right, I'm gonna save up money for a year, and then go to LA. That was gonna be my plan because you know which. Is, you know, it's not a bad plan, but it's not really much of a plan. It's just, I'm just gonna show up. Yeah. Because people do it all the time. Most of them end up leaving again not long after that. You know, they get off the bus every day and people are leaving every day. And after about six, nine months of saving money, I didn't have much saved. A guy I knew from college that uh, we had stayed in touch, he was in stand up as well. And he wanted to get into the business, um, just stand-up comedy. And I was doing open mic nights at the local comedy club in Savannah, at the Comedy House. So I was there every Tuesday doing open mic nights, and then they started throwing me MC gigs. So I thought, all right, I'm going to do this stand-up too, because I can actually make a little bit of money doing it. So I would do that, and then I thought, all right, I'm still going to get into the acting though, so I'm still just going to move to L.A., and I'll try everything out there. And my buddy said... Let's go to Orlando first. Orlando's a four-hour drive from Savannah. Four and a half hours. He's got a friend that already lives there, and he says, they have Universal Studios there. This is in 92, 93 we're having this conversation. Okay. 92, late 92. So a year after I'm graduated, I'm scraping my pennies together. And he said, if we go to Orlando, then we can make all kinds of mistakes and no one will care. (laughs) That's true. It's a great place to get your training wheels off. Yeah. So, we go down to Orlando. We, you know, find a very cheap apartment. My share of the rent was $195. Oh, man. Yeah. I don't even want to think about that anymore. That's this was amazing. March. Okay, March 19th, 1993. That was my brother's birthday as well. Uh-huh. So, that day, I moved from Savannah to Orlando. So, it has been 26 years that I've been on my own completely. Yeah. And... Yeah, we lived in an apartment where it was, technically it was government housing. You had to prove that you made less than a certain amount of money in order to move in. Yeah. And we had no problem proving that. <laughs> yeah, right. I got a job at the Olive Garden, and I did some uh, MC gigs for 200 bucks a week occasionally. Uh-huh. That first year, I made $9,000 all year. But because my rent was 200 bucks a month... You were rolling in it. And ramen was 26 cents you for bet. a pack. Still and I worked is. at Olive Garden. I could take desserts home. And right. is anyone going to eat these breadsticks? No, I'll take them home. <laughs> so you you know, you you know, sort of... You find a way. Right. I moved to Savannah. No, I moved from Savannah to Orlando with $1,000 in my pocket. A year later, I still had $1,000 in my pocket. So it cost me $9,000 because you didn't have to pay taxes on that. Yeah. So I got a refund. So I started doing stand-up there, and after, this is how, I guess this is about the only way you could do it. After a year of living in, uh, almost a year of living in Orlando, I had gotten a few stand-up jobs. I had done some open mics. I started to know my way around the city, and then I thought, okay, it's time to get an acting agent. And I just, I literally opened up the Yellow Pages, started looking at agencies, Oh, this one's in Winter Park. That's a nice suburb. That must be a nice agency then. <laughs> and I just called him up and I said, um, yeah, I'm a comic. I've been doing some comedy and uh, I want to get into acting. So i you know, looking for an agent. And the agent actually said, okay, uh, what else have you done? He chatted with me a minute uh-huh. and he said, all right, come on in. So I made an appointment. I went and I met with him and he goes, okay. Um, he chatted with me for a few more minutes and he handed me a monologue and he said, take that home, come back tomorrow, do a monologue for me. I said, okay. This is where it helped to have a little bit of acting class under my belt. Yeah, that's right. I came back, I sat in his office, and there was uh, like an assistant moving papers and boxes around in the background. And the assistant looked at him and said, oh, should I leave? And he goes, no, no, keep doing what you're (laughs) doing. And I knew he was going to say that, so it didn't bother me. Yeah. So I did the monologue, and he said, all right, I'll work with you. And that was it. I started going on auditions, and I actually booked the first audition I ever went on. But it was because they wanted a Barney Fife Uh look-alike and sound-alike. Oh, man. Yeah, this was an on-camera commercial for Armed Forces TV. And it was like an industrial commercial to tell the soldiers how to lock your your locker Uh so that nobody breaks into it. And it was all these detectives. And I was Barney Fife. And one guy was Cluzo. And one guy was Columbo. And... Yeah, I booked that. I showed up to the audition in khakis with a black tie and literally a trooper's hat that I rented from a costume shop. Oh, man. I know. It was the most rookie thing you can do. I thought, oh, if it's an audition for something, you should show up dressed as that person, which is like apparently the dumbest thing you could do. They say that, but every
0: time where I've really committed, with the exception of one memorable time where I dressed like a Viking in Chicago for a Snickers commercial... It's, it's, it's worked out in my favor,
1: Maybe, it, whatever, I mean, you know whatever
0: what? helps you. And if renting a hat helps you feel like you're Barney Fife, then by yep. God, put down that 12 bucks. I know
1: I booked it and I thought, Oh, so you go on an audition and you just book it. Oh, well, this is going to be a cinch. <laughs> right. And then, yeah, you come back down to earth a little bit, you know, yeah. but for the most part, yeah, you just sort of fumble your way along. Yeah. And it was about four years of that, starting to do some on-camera work, you know, I did some stuff for Nickelodeon and well, some like, of that.
0: Did they have, because of Universal Studios, Nickelodeon yeah. had a they studio right space, there. So they were yeah. doing stuff.
1: That's how I got on, I got on all that, which yeah. the, the rerun still plays, I still get like 80 cents <laughs> from that, that was in 96, or 95. I was on Kenan and Kel. I was on the pilot and then I was on two other episodes because they would keep putting costumes on me to disguise me because I wasn't a regular. I said, yeah, let's bring them back but this time you have to wear a wig. This time you have to wear (laughs) this. You have to, all right, this time you're a messenger and this time you're whatever. This time you have to wear a superhero costume. So, yeah, that was my learning how to be on a set. Hmm. And that's that's valuable valuable information. Right? And then just a little bit of voiceover here and there. And then, In Orlando, I booked uh, a theme park ride voice where I was Spider-Man. Spider-Man and J. Jonah Jameson for the Islands of Adventure theme park ride. I didn't know that you were Spider-Man on the Spider-Man ride. Spider-Man and J. Jonah Jameson. Jameson. Yeah, and it was weird how I got that because I just made a little bit of a reputation for myself around town as a guy who was a good utility guy. I could do different voices, sound like different people. So Sound Deluxe had a studio there, and they were working on scratch tracks for the ride. Okay. So they said, hey, why don't you come in and lay down some strats, some scratch tracks for these characters? So I did scratch work for every character on the ride. All the villains. Oh, wow. And Spider-Man and J. Jonah Jameson. And then when it came time to do Spider-Man, I thought, I'll just do my voice. Because, you know, and I'm pretty similar. Yeah. And then one day the director of the ride said, um, what are you doing next week? Because we were working on more scratch tracks. And we were finishing the session. I was signing my paperwork. And he says, what are you doing next week? I said, eh, nothing. He goes, How'd you like to fly to L.A.? I want you to be my Spider-Man. But. Oh, man. All right, sure. So they flew me to L.A., and I was in the studio with Pat Fraley. No kidding! Yeah, like this legendary, and he was, like, I was so far outside the industry, I didn't know who he was. Yeah. You know, and, and I've made that mistake many times. Like, I was <laughs> once in the room with um, um, Frank Welker. And I didn't know who he was. I mean, I knew who Frank Welker was, but I didn't know that, that was Frank guy Welker. is Frank Welker. This is just Frank. Yeah, we were just getting ready. We were doing a pilot. And I said, hey, who are you doing? He goes, "I'm I'm doing a, a grasshopper voice. And I said, oh, cool. He goes, yeah, I do animal voices pretty well. I said... Hey, don't sell yourself short. That's a pretty cool talent. And in the back of my mind, I thought, <laughs> you should tell him about this Frank Welker guy who makes a lot of money doing that. And I didn't say that. And he said, by the way, I'm Frank Welker. And I said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> pardon me. <laughs> 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 yeah. So I do the Spider-Man ride, and it takes a couple of years of going back and forth between Orlando and L.A. But finally, while I'm busy doing that, I just say, I'm done with Orlando, and I move to L.A. Yeah. I had a manager. They were managing me for stand-up, and I was doing the road a lot. So I moved out here. That was July of 97. So July will be 22 years of being in L.A., which will officially be longer than I've ever lived anywhere in my life. Oh, man. So that's a heck of a realization.
0: That is a heck of a realization.
1: Yeah, and I didn't end up here. I took myself out here. Yeah. So yeah, and it's taken a long time but I finally feel like okay, I am a Californian, I'm an Angelino. Yeah. I never would have thought I'd say that.
0: That feeling is something that slowly creeps onto you. Like yeah. there's something about this place because it's because there's so many transplants. Mm-hmm. and and mingling among real people who are like, nah born and bred, man. I'm from, yeah. nah I'm from Silver Lake. I've always grown, you know what I mean? You
1: can tell by how normal they are.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. That's absolutely true. Yeah, they're totally unaffected by this place.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. I love it. A, a A dear friend of mine, native Californian, uh, Bob Street, made me a sandwich the other day. I went to go mm-hmm. pick up my daughter after a sleepover, and, and Bob just made it. He's like, well, let me make you a sandwich. And he made me an avocado, <laughs> like a croissant. With of course avocado, it had avocado of course. on it. Yeah. And an heirloom tomato, and an avocado, a little bacon little pepper and it was Wait. perfection.
1: Even after the recall he made you an avocados? Yeah, it's okay. Feeling he's right? a
0: native Californian. I trust him. I all trust right. where okay, he's getting good. his
1: avocados. But yeah. well, how long have you been out here? Um nine
0: this will be no, 8 years. This 8, eight years. years. All right. And I and I've lived in I've lived in this town longer than I've lived in any other town aside from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And that's okay. I was in Chicago for 5 was the longest
1: anywhere else. Detroit, I'd been in and around for a while. We must have talked about this. I spent a lot of time in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Did you really? Because I dated a girl that lived there. When I was on the road, I met uh, a girl that I just started dating because uh-huh. we really hit it off. And when, and I stayed out, I this was one of those times where this was in 98 and I was broke. And my manager just said, look, I'm just going to book you a bunch of gigs in a row. I said, okay. And I had just met her. And so I went out for a six-month run, six months in a row. Mm -hmm. I drove my car to the first gig, which was somewhere, I guess, around Indianapolis, I think. And I just started doing all these gigs. And whenever I had time off, I would go to Grand Rapids. And I played Grand Rapids like twice during that six-month run. So I got to know the town fairly well. It's a nice town. Yeah, it's a cool town. You know, the people are really cool. They're really really nice. And... In the summer, they are all outside doing stuff because in the winter, it was 30 below. That's right. That was brutal. brutal. It's brutal. That was brutal. So, yeah, when I finally came back, it was like, yeah, I left in July of 98 and I remember driving through Death Valley and I saw that huge thermometer near Barstow (laughs) and it said 127 degrees. It was 127 degrees. Oh, man. And then in December of that year, I was playing Knucklehead's Comedy Club in the Mall of America in Minneapolis. It was 30 below. So it was a 157 degree oh, temperature man. swing.
0: That's incredible. Did yeah. you drive that entire tour?
1: Yes, I did. I did. Because... Flying and renting a car yeah. was not cost effective because mainly I was the feature act, which was basically meant I was making five to six hundred dollars per gig. Oh, yeah, with room and board, but right. those were like four or five day a week gigs. And when I didn't have a gig, I would run over to Grand Rapids, stay rent free with my girlfriend, yeah, and um, and we, it's a good yeah.
0: central hub for
1: it was not bad, yeah. I ended up playing a lot you know? of stuff around there, yeah and then by april of 99 she had had enough of me and so yeah by the time i made my, my way back to la we were we were pretty much just about done you know and i don't blame her you know, so, it was not the way to go so when you yeah. moved out
0: here and made the transition you're mm-hmm. doing the ride and you're and and then you as you just said you're broke and that's part broke. of the challenge of coming out to los angeles you know, regardless of what you got in your pocket. I mean, when I moved out here, I had three national campaigns and they all went away. Really? All of them. Nice. Advanced Auto Parts. Good times. Denny's <laughs> and uh, U.S. Cellular. Yeah, exactly. Man. And it was like, oh, I could do voiceover anywhere, right? Right. And it, was, and it was that cold realization of like, well,
1: prove yourself. You know, here yeah. you go. And, and doing what you got to do to get by. It's never easy to be poor. Yeah. But it's really tough to be poor in a town where you don't know anybody, yeah. where they didn't ask you to come, you know, <laughs> where you feel like you're crashing the party. Yes, and and the older you get, the harder it gets to be poor because you start looking around thinking, no one else my age is this poor. Yeah. Well, yeah, but nobody else your age is is taking this leap. That's what I used to tell myself because I was, I was. 33 before I was out of debt, before I had any kind of net worth, I was 33 years old. And at 32, I had a dark night of the soul. No, Mm -hmm. even early in 2002, when I was was 33 years old, no, I was 32, and I was so broke, I had about hmm, $10 in the bank, and I had one credit card, but I maxed it out. I was over it by about $50. Yeah and it was because I had done a gig in Toledo, Ohio two weeks before, and after I'd flown back home, they had mistakenly charged me for two nights on my card for the hotel, and I said, no, no, the hotel pays for that, or the the comedy club pays for that, and they said, oh, okay, well, we'll talk to the hotel or the, the comedy club about it, so meanwhile, my manager was trying to get the hotel to take the two nights off of my card so I could have about I don't know, 40 or $30 left that I could get a cash advance on my credit card yeah. so I could have money to pay the cab driver to take me on my next gig because I was going to be flown out to do a cruise ship. Mm. And in order to get from the airport to the to the uh, the port, yeah, down I needed to take a taxi cab. Yeah, no, this was going to be back in Florida. I oh. think we were leaving out of Orlando, I think. So just to get a ride in the Orlando airport. Yeah. Oh, right. Actually, no, it was somewhere in Mexico, I believe. Yeah, it was Mexico. I was flying to Mexico. I needed a cab driver to take me to the marina where the ship was going to leave. And I just needed to have enough money in my pocket to pay for a cab. And I remember writing a long email to my agent saying, my manager saying, I've never been this broke in my life, not even when I was in college. And I can't take it anymore. Whatever you're going to book for me for the rest of the year, because it was only around January, I said, book it now so I can see when I'm working, what I'm going to make, so I can budget, because I can't take this. I shouldn't be this broke. I'm 33 years old, for crying out loud, or 32. Can't we do something about this? And, yeah, they managed to get the money put back on the card. Turns out there was a shuttle that took me for free to the ship. And I made like 2000 a week for the next two weeks.
0: Oh, man. Even
1: after the commission, I still walked away with enough where I thought, okay. But I don't ever want to be that poor again. And yeah. magically, within like two months, two or three months later, I booked a national campaign for Tropicana orange juice. And it ran for six months. Oh. I got out of debt. I paid off my student loan. I actually managed to buy an, a, a a pre-owned Infiniti, so it was old, but it was still mine. But it was yours. Yeah, and from that moment on, it was one thing that clicked, and it was just one thing. But somehow that year, I started booking more jobs, yeah. but only I mean, it was a matter of weeks before that. Yeah, I was the poorest I had ever been in my life. Yeah, I, I could not believe that you could pivot that quickly. Yes. I knew it had happened to other people. I just didn't think it was going to happen to me.
0: It happened to me. It happened to me. What was the job? um, I don't remember specifically what the job was. Okay. But um, it was, it's been, it's been, it was a cascade, but it was almost as if I had to get to a place where I went below zero. Yeah. And this is like, and this is not like, this is recent history. This is like within moving to California. Really? This is on the heels of, you know, not budgeting well after being right. like my first really big national success. My first really big, like, paydays where I was like, I didn't, I knew you could make money, but I didn't know you could make this kind of
1: money. Right. Wait, how old, wait, how old is your daughter now? is 12. So you had a kid. Oh, yeah. You were married with a kid. Oh, yeah. There's nothing tougher than being broke, and you have a wife and a kid, and you're thinking, "I'm supposed to be doing something about this, aren't I?" This is like driving to, driving to before they had closed Record
0: Exchange uh-huh. over there on Wilshire, which right. is now a Select Comfort, right, with a bag full of DVDs, selling them for cash to put into the Chase account. To cover the yeah. overdraft of $12. Yeah. To get through to hopefully maybe a residual check will come in. Yeah. For something. That level of of terror. And being with a woman who's like, I've been poor before. I get it. It's fine. We'll figure it out. Same. That has made all of the difference.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? I That's what my wife tells me. We could live in a box as long as we're together. As long as the kids are all together, we're good. Yeah. And luckily I have never put that, Let's that see. pledge well, to the table. Enjoy test. the box, sweetheart. I got yeah.
0: A, I got a you want a window? Hang on, I got an exact
1: one. Yeah, exactly. I just thought I'd test your loyalty, my <laughs> sweet. Hey, you know. Yeah. I don't like talkers. I like doers. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see how deep this love really goes. Oh man. Yeah. But
0: like I I'm at the same time, as hard as that was, there's a there's an aspect of that, that feels like, you know what? Whatever I came to this city with, I had to uh-huh. purge. And it's yeah. purged. And now
1: <laughs> whatever I've earned and worked and built and the relationships and the jobs and the It's credits. all you. You did it. Yeah. Every morning I do something where I... It's a Tony Robbins thing. Huh? And I just do these little gratitudes. I do a stretch in the morning, wake myself up, lay on the floor, a little deep breaths, a you know, little minor meditations. And then I just go over a list in my head of what I'm thankful for. Yeah. Usually it's I'm thankful for my wife, I'm thankful for my kids, I'm thankful for the good health I have, knock on wood. I'm thankful for the career I have. I'm thankful for where I live. I'm thankful for all the things that I have some control over. Like, Mm. I have some control over all of those things because I try to take care of myself. I chose to move us to where we live. I walked across a busy courtyard at the Getty Museum to meet my wife and put her in my life. We chose to have kids. I am thankful for everything that's worked out in my favor that I had no control over, But I like to spend time being thankful for the things that I put in my life because it also gives me confidence. If you remind yourself of the things you've done that have worked out, then when it hits the fan, and it always does, you'll have this routine of saying, but yeah, but look at all the things I've already done for myself. I should be able to handle this. Hmm. So it's that little daily reminder of, yeah, you're walking a tightrope here. The fact that you're doing well in this business is already a lottery ticket yes. cashed in, but they can always knock you off. They can pull the rug out from under you whenever they feel like it. And they don't even need to give you a reason. Yeah. So you're playing with house money. Be happy about it and realize that, that they can yank it away and then they can give it back to you. That's right. You know?
0: Uh, the distinction that you put on there about yeah. like the things that you chose to do mm-hmm. and how that feeds your confidence that's really yeah. that's really uh that's so true and uh, you know a lot of times when i go through my gratitude process it's mm-hmm. about what i've received from yeah you know i'm catholic from god from blessings from yeah. you know from the universe but then also taking ownership of the things the proactive steps that you've sure. done helps reaffirm and build that like I'm not a complete idiot. I've made, right. You don't know, smart yeah. choices.
1: Yeah. And this is important because for anyone listening, if you get into this business or if you move out here, if you're already out here, you already know there will be plenty of people who are ready to make you question yourself, yes. who are ready to tell you of, uh, <laughs> of what they think your value is and how little they value you. You will get besieged <laughs> by negativity and discouragement and... Any other thing you can possibly think of to get you back on that bus. Yeah. Because they, I've always heard this, like LA loves new people. It's true. They love this, Robert Evans, the producer, used to say this, sense of discovery. People love to discover new things, but you're new for not that long. Yeah. And once they've seen you twice and they've decided not to like you, now they can't stand you and can't wait to get rid of you. You know, it's like, Mm. we have more new people coming in. You know, I'm not going to tell you to quit because nobody likes to be direct here. Right. I'm going to passive aggressively make you feel unwanted. I'm sure you've gotten this from, oh. from uh, on camera casting directors. Mm-hmm. I don't get it from the voiceover side. The voiceover side is very cool. Yes. It's I agree. almost all cool people. Yes. The, the, the way you find out you didn't get something is you just don't hear from them. And it's usually not a big deal because you send it in from home anyway. It's like that's I forgot right. I
0: even read for that, and then you find out that one of your friends got, got it. And you're it. Like, and hey, okay. like, "Oh man, he needed that!"
1: Or good that's for him. Great, exactly. Yeah. Good for them. Good for them, and and uh, it all works out because there's work for everybody. But on camera, hmm. that's a different kind of that's a different kind of work.
0: Did you transition out of on camera? Had you
1: you worked in it a little bit, or did you just yeah. dis- did you make a decision to be like,
0: you know what, I'm kind of done with that
1: space? I like to think uh, I made the decision, but uh, part of it is the decision was made for me. You know, just this, this this sort of way the business kind of tells you that, yeah, we have plenty. Yeah. We're good. No, you don't need to come around anymore. No, because <laughs> I remember I had a manager tell me, Chris, if you were a person of color or gay or a female, I could get you work. But you are a straight white male. This is around 98. And he said, there's too many of you. Yeah. And he says, I'm not even trying to be mean because he himself was a person of color. Uh-huh. And he said, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you, it's, you look like everybody. <laughs> and he was not wrong. Yeah, I look like the 80th choice <laughs> for uh, Chandler Bing on Friends. I mean, <laughs> I, I couldn't have been more cookie cutter if I tried.
0: Oh, man.
1: Which is fine. There's plenty of parts written for that. But guess what? You got company. Yeah, that's right. That's the hardest part about like you and I, like if I was to get back into um, on camera, I'd be a character guy. Yeah. Which is great. There's there's plenty of stuff for character actors, but guess what? There's a ton of competition. And by the time my age group comes up, because I'm going to be 50 this year, yeah. the guys who are 50 who are character actors have been doing it a long time and they are good. That's right. They are really good. Yeah. You know, that's so nice. that's that's the biz. You find your niche. You find your
0: place. Right. And, you know, like not everybody's a seven iron. And and if yeah. I can find my versatility in, you know, I I I, sp- I cast a really wide net, and yeah. I've been really fortunate that right. I I work at those particular at all those right. aspects. You're a similar kind of performer. You're in, in voiceover. All yeah. kinds of stuff in terms of you know.
1: Yeah. You like. Know. Yeah, for one. Yeah, for one of the shows, I just you know the people ask me, "What do you do for the show?" I say, "I'm a I'm a Swiss Army knife." Whatever they need, pull out this tool. I do it because in Voiceover, I can do that. Yeah, you know, and that makes me useful. Makes you useful in a lot of ways. As as a Swiss Army knife, right? Well, uh, how do you go about that process? If you're,
0: let's let's say, I mean, if you can talk about the show that you're referring sure. to, or you're a Swiss yeah, Army knife. Yeah, The Simpsons. So on The Simpsons, you're yeah. a Swiss Army knife. Meaning, right. what happens? You're, it, do you determine that in cast read through or? Uh, scripts are handed to you and you do the table read and that's right. when you're discovering it?
1: That's kind of the way it works is that for the table read, not everyone is always available. Sometimes they'll, they'll, uh, they'll come in through a conference call. Sometimes they can't get them and I'll read their part, you know. Okay. And mainly it's for just a couple of the, of the guys' parts and, um, and I'll just cover them. And then they usually uh, find something in there for me to do and there'll be a part or two just for me. And it'll be just some variation of whatever, anything they need for the script. It could be a guy who is European. It could be a guy who's Southern. It could be a young dad. It could be a, a homeless guy. It's whatever it is, I plug that in. And yeah, usually it starts at the table read. And then by the time they're ready to record, then it maybe is morphed a little bit. Okay, And then... Months later, you might come in and do um, some looping or a dialogue replacement where they have changed it a little bit and then you, you know, you roll with it. So, and that's with a lot of shows, you Mm -hmm. know. I've done the same thing for F is for Family where I'm one thing at a table read and then by the time we record, they've asked, uh, can you do this as well? Yeah. Sure. It's just nice to have a crew of guys and I'm, I'm not the only guy. There's plenty of people on these shows. Obviously, the Simpsons cast is all great. I mean, they all are amazing. And some of them do literally dozens of characters, you know, so that's not new for them. It's just that at a certain point, um, yeah, they're going to have no voice left. So, you know, here's Edgerly to (laughs) pick up a little bit of the, yeah, I'll pick up a crumb or two, you know, (laughs) which I'm thrilled to do. When did you start working for the show? That was April of 2010. Oh, wow. So, Twenty years after I started watching the show in my dorm, I get to be on the show. Oh man! And that was not lost on me. Yeah. And it was ten years to the month after I met Pat Brady,
0: really? who is yeah our yeah. agent
1: at CESD. Pat's the reason I have a career because mm-hmm. I met her at KSA, which is Kazarian Spencer and Associates, back in two thousand. Because I had done those theme park rides, I had done another theme park ride for Universal. And John Rust and Bernadette Bowman, who were working for Universal at the time, producing the ride, they said, hey, they had done a few sessions with me and they said, do you have an agent? I said, no, I still don't have an agent yet. I've been here three years. I'd love to have a voiceover agent. And they yeah. said, we can get you a meeting with somebody. And it was with Pat. Oh. I met with her, did some voices for her, put together a demo. She signed me. And at the time on my demo, I put these Simpsons voices. And she said, hey, you're pretty good at those. Hey, you know, you never know with this crazy business. Hey you know, keep them in your back pocket. That's It's a nice skill to have, is what yeah. she was really saying. Yeah. And that was in April of 2000. In April of 2010, 10 years, almost to the day, she said, uh, hey, you have this audition. And it's not like any other audition you're ever going to do. And she said, just get ready to do all these characters and be ready. And uh, the next day I went in and auditioned. And then... The I think it was either later that day or the next afternoon. She said, "All right, you got it." They're messengering over a script. You're going to record Monday. And on Monday, I was at Fox, surrounded by the the cast. And it was my life was one thing on Wednesday, and on Monday, it was a different thing. And it is the greatest job I will ever have. Mm-hmm. Surrounded by the coolest people to work with that I will ever know, and um, it has allowed me to live like an adult. Yes. Yeah. I was doing fine before. Yeah. I was living like an adult in Brentwood and I would, I had just gotten like, I was, I got married a week after I got cast in the show. Oh man. We postponed our honeymoon <laughs> right. and then until we had a break. So, because we were going to go to Europe for three weeks. Oh man. And they said, it would be nice if you held off on that cause you just started. And I said, we'll be happy to do that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, I got all of these things happened within like a one month span, get on the show, get married, um, you know, and completely see your career get rerouted.
0: Man alive.
1: Yeah. In the best possible way.
0: Best possible way.
1: What an amazing thing. Yeah. That's, that's one of those things where you, um, you don't think about that happening because you're not able to imagine how that would happen. Yeah. You know, but I always told people who are in on camera, especially people who are in uh, theatrical, I said, no matter how tough it may be for you right now, you're one or two good auditions away from a career. Not just a good job, but maybe even a career. Whereas in voiceover, you're one or two auditions away, usually from a good year. Like, okay, I booked that that animated series and I'm going to have a decent year. Or I booked that campaign and they're going to make quite a few spots. So my year is going to be pretty good. Right. I never thought that it would happen that way with voiceover, but then again, I happen to luck onto the only show that will <laughs> never end. It will never Knock end. on wood. That's right. I, if I have anything to say about it, it's never <laughs> going to end. So
0: that's so true, though. That that's that's completely consistent with with my experience as well. Of like, yeah, yeah. You can get a thing that is going to be a staggeringly fantastic thing for that year. Yeah, for and about it, a year. It yeah. may run longer. You may have a may right. have a campaign that. That lives on for two and a half, three years. Yeah. You could be the voice of a network for seven, eight, nine years. Yeah. Uh, but but the general rule of thumb is... Generally. Yeah. Generally. There but, are rarities. But that on-camera yeah. thing of, like, a great audition and a casting director or someone who champions you, yep. that can completely transform everything. Have you ever had
1: Graham McTavish on? Not yet, no. Okay, but you know Graham? I've met him once or twice. Okay, yeah, he's at, Graham is at the agency, and he's uh. <laughs> He moved here from England, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. When, maybe not even 10 years ago. Maybe 7 or 8 years ago. Bo was talking about him when I first started okay. at CESD. So right. probably, right. yeah, 2011, maybe yeah. Like, real super recent. Right like around there. this lovely guy, funny as anything, really nice. And he looks like a mean dude, like <laughs> a bad guy. Yeah. But he's the nicest guy you'd ever hope to meet. So well-mannered, too. And just very proper Brit, you know? Yeah. But he had done a lot of stuff already in England. He had worked a lot. But he, like a lot of guys, said, I'm going to pick up and move to L.A. But he did it like in his late 40s. Wow. Or mid-40s. And so he moves here. And then he's working. You know, he was busy working, getting stuff. And then one day I read, Graham McTavish will star as Dwalin in The Hobbit. I thought, <laughs> oh, man. where to go, Graham. And then I asked him. I saw him at the agency. I said, dude, I got to hear the story. How did that work? He goes, it was three auditions. That was it. I said, really? You're going to be in all these movies and it was three auditions and that's it. He says, yeah. I read once sort of like a general audition where everybody's there and then they had me do a callback. So I came in and I read and then I read again for, I guess, Peter Jackson and then that was it. And the guy ended up moving to New Zealand because, <laughs> because they said, yeah, it's going to be two movies. Oh, no, wait, it's going to be three. It's going to be three. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be three. And we're going to do reshoots. And and I think Graham's wife was from New Zealand. Oh, wow. So they just said, yeah, okay, let's just move there. Yeah. And I don't know if he ever moved back. I haven't seen him. It, yeah. Kind of that's what happens when you suddenly <laughs> appear in every movie. That's right. Yeah. And, you just uh, kind
0: of, diffi- you stop being in the lobby of the office, get, right. doing your auditions, and then yeah. you're exactly like
1: i I, yeah nolan and i used to see each other at the office all the time because they needed us to read right there and then slowly everybody starts sending in from home yeah and then even if he wanted to come in and read i doubt he would have the time because he suddenly just started to be on everything and even for me sometimes it's tough to make it there for any reason
0: i have a similar challenge yeah Yeah, yeah, exactly
1: and it's not even that far away no but that's the point about this business is that I got, like, I was working since I was, like, I had been working in show business since I was 23, just doing stand-up stuff or booking the odd commercial, but I was making a living at it since I was 23, 24. I quit my last day job. Well, that's not true. I was fired. (laughs) I worked at a Disney resort in 95, and I was fired, and it's funny because later that next year, I was hired by Disney to do, like, performance capture stuff for Mulan, (laughs) It's just funny. I thought, "Ha, Disney's still paying me. (laughs) That's right. Right. But in 95 was the last day job I ever had. It was the last time I got paid to do anything but be a performer. Yeah. But I was making a living. I was able to live as an adult by the time I was about 33. And yet my real peak and rhythm didn't start until I was 40. Yeah. Like I got The Simpsons at 40. And I started getting other stuff. Like the year before that happened... I reached a certain um, benchmark in my life as far as the amount of money I made in a year. Yeah. And I had never hit that. And the next year, this happened. And then that's been going on. This is my 10th season. We're recording now and that. And I'm still, I've been there for less than a third of the show's run. Yeah, That's how new I am for that. Yeah. But I'm going to be 50 in August. And I have never been busier than I am at this moment. And we had some students from University of Georgia come out and I took them to a table read and I let them see some of a record session or I let them see some of the studio at Fox and they're all like 20, 21, 22. And I said to them, do you guys ever feel because of social media like there's this pressure on you to succeed right away? And they all immediately said yes. Hmm. Yes, because everyone we know is on social media, either Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest, talking about how great they have it, right. how well they're doing. And I said, don't pay any attention to that. I know it's easier said than done. None of them are as successful or happy as they want you to believe they are. Yeah. They're all just just getting by like the rest of you are. Yeah. You're going to eat sand for a while. But I'm telling you, like the job you guys came to see me do today, I got it when I was 40. Yeah. And I was perfectly happy before then. It's not like I was miserable until it happened. Right. I just I was building a resume. I was building a skill set. And I'm gonna be 50 and I've never worked as I'm work I never worked as much as I'm working right now. The first 3 months of this year and I've always had nice busy years knock on wood. Yeah. I've never been as busy as I am right now. And I'm at that age where, you know, if this was a science fiction movie, they would have popped me a long time ago for <laughs> weakening the gene pool or yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's Logan's is, Run. Logan's it's like, Run. It's time for you to be... Uh... Yeah, Logan's Run 2020, <laughs> I guess maybe 30 is, 40 is the new 30. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, I, I guess the point being that, like we we're saying, this can change like that. That's right. But it only changes for you if you work at what you're doing. If you work at getting good, then you will always have the ability to magically transform your circumstances when that opportunity comes. But if you're just sitting around bemoaning your fate, you're not going to class. Right. Or like in my case, I was lucky enough to be getting auditions all the time. So it was like a free workshop. Yeah. I was reading for every kind of thing you could read for. So I was always in practice. Yeah. But if you're not working at it, when the, uh, when the opportunity comes, you won't be ready. So that chance to slingshot into a new reality you're not ready for because Man. yeah everybody thinks oh well I never got my break it's like you got a million breaks you just didn't know they were there That's
0: right and what are you doing to take care of those breaks and when right. are you ready are you ready to meet it when it comes to you Yeah and what do you Will Smith says I stay ready so I don't have to get ready Yeah and that that's I mean it's such valuable advice and I think yeah. something that's so important to always be remembering mm-hmm. and Whenever I'm teaching a class, people are always like, "I want to get a reel. I want to get an agent." I'm like, I remember George Carmona sitting there, <laughs> sitting there at CESD, sitting back in his chair. And they, like, "Hey George, what advice would you guys give to students?" And he's like, Kiff, you just tell them get good. We'll be here when they're ready." I was like, "Well, that's the best advice ever." And it's that's true. So true. Yeah, you're not going to get a chance to reintroduce yourself to yeah. someone like Pat who can make or break your career. Someone like Bo or Samita or Kathy or Brie right. or any of the folks who are at any of the other talent agencies. Yeah,
1: in there are different schools of thought on this too. I know a comic who's been through the development process. He was around in the 80s. Mm-hmm. He's had different peaks and valleys in his career. He always said, everyone who is not famous is face down in a ditch. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they notice you, they pull you out of the ditch and you're you're doing great. And then when they don't like you anymore, you go back to being face down in a ditch. That's, right. That's He is all or nothing with his attitude. Oh, I'm of man. a different attitude. I think that it's not that at all. I think that there are these different steps. Hmm. You're at a different place on the staircase. And yeah, Will Smith is at the top of the staircase. And the guy who just got off the bus is at the bottom. There are a lot of people on the middle steps because... You're not nobody, you're not face down in a ditch if the casting directors all know you, if they value your work, if you've worked before, if you've gotten your your pension and health credit, you're that much closer to a pension, if you're getting health insurance because you've been working. You're not face down in a ditch, although he has a point. when When the phone's not ringing, it feels as though it's a cold, cruel world. Yes. But that person who has already proven themselves... Right now, the phone may not be ringing, but they know who you are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, you know, maybe you're not new anymore, but they also, it's the other thing that is true about this business, is that they like something they already know that works. Yes. They would rather, I'm sure you have casting directors that call you in regularly because they know that you're going to do well with this part. Yeah. And they just can't wait for the right part to come along because they know that, you know what, when this comes along, it's going to be Kif I'm going to put on it. Yeah. You know, and that producer is finally going to see that Kiff is ready for this.
0: And it's an amazing feeling when you go into the same casting director until you book it. Yeah. And then you don't see them for two, three years. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because because the show they're casting, you're you're burned on, man. Yeah. You you've done what you've done. So it's incumbent on you to, in those times when the phone's not ringing, is not necessarily to make the phone ring, but your job is also to say. How can I introduce myself to people who don't know me? What are the best ways to do that? Right. And the best way to do that is without your
1: hat in your hand. And being yeah. desperate, you know, yeah. and finding a way to, you know. Nobody likes desperate. No. <laughs> no. That's, people ask me, what's LA like? What's show business like? And I always say, everything you've heard is true.
0: <laughs> Every
1: single thing, no matter how ridiculous or cliched, it's all true. Yeah. It all goes. Because, yeah, like when people say... I'm looking for a break. It's like, well, look, the break may not come the way you think it is. Maybe your break is that you um, finally got a chance to read for somebody that you never got to read before. That's right. And maybe you don't book it, but finally they saw you and they'd never seen you. Now you've gone up a notch. You're on another step. You're not on that old step. You're on a higher step. You just may not be aware of it. Yeah. Two or three years later, you move up another step because you impressed somebody with something you did that showed that you were prepared. Yeah. Now they think of you a little bit differently. You move up a step. Yes, you can always move back down by doing the wrong things. Mm -hmm. But if you keep doing the right things, if you keep working at it, you will keep moving up steps. Until one day, yeah, they may bring you in because you're tested and they already know you. They already like you. And they're only bringing in, they'll tell an agency, give me your five best people. Yeah. Because we don't have time to listen to everybody. And maybe that's the one thing you book that gets you out of debt. Now you're on another step.
0: That's right.
1: Now you're not walking into that next audition with your hat in your hand. Yeah. You got a little spring in your step and they sniff that out. That's right. That's the confidence that's going to make the difference. Yeah. You booked something, you just moved up a step, not just because, yeah, you're going to eat this month, also because it's going to change your vibe Yeah. and it's palpable. They sense it. They know it. They being everyone that's not you. It's not just casting directors. <laughs> yeah. The people who see you in the lobby when you're waiting to go in. They can sense that this guy feels a lot more comfortable about this than I do.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's everything is a step. Move up the steps. That's it. You know? One step at a time. And
0: right. you don't and you don't get to call how many steps there are. <laughs> I know. It'd be great to say it's a twelve step process. Right. But it, it might be fifty seven steps. Yeah. It Some might, people may have to take a lot more.
1: But the point is you
0: just keep on climbing and keep yeah. making, keep taking them.
1: Yeah. Even Brad Pitt had to come up the steps. And that guy looked like a movie star ever yeah. since he was awake. Yeah. I mean... He used to work at Cuckoo right? Spinning signs. Yeah, I think he did that. I think he, they once even had him wear a chicken outfit. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh... You do what you got to do to get the job done. Yeah, and that's Brad Pitt. Right. I mean, Zach Galifianakis, when he had him on Between Two Ferns, he said, How old were you when you lost your virginity? Zero? <laughs> <laughs> so I, if that guy, who yeah. looks like that, yeah. has to go up the steps, then, you know, it's it's a very rare person that, that um, just immediately makes it. Like Tom Cruise even struggled for a little bit. You he bet. had a year or two where he wandered in the wilderness, and then... He got on. He had a small part in *Endless Love*, like one line. Yeah. Then he got in *Taps*. Yep. And he got graduated almost from a glorified extra to a major character, and then he goes and reads for *Risky Business*. I think while he's making *Taps*. Now he's at, and he's been at the top step ever since. That's right. Yeah, he's never moved. He's
0: he's one of those cats who like came in as a leading man and stayed as a leading man. Right. Well into his fifties. Yeah. And still delivers the goods. And that's at the end of the day, Tom
1: Cruise. Love him or hate
0: him, yeah. dude's entertaining.
1: Nobody Mission outworks
0: him. him. No yeah. one outworks him.
1: Yeah, and it's true. The The Mission Impossible movie we just Boy. saw, it's like, that's a great movie. It's a blast. Yeah. That guy's going to make as many of those as he wants to because right. he's still making it well because he still cares. That's what I tell people about The Simpsons. Like, what's that like? I said, they still care. Hmm. They they really do care. I hear the actors saying, would so-and-so say that? date After 30 years... They still want to get it right. Wow! They really care. The writers still chew their fingernails about whether or not this joke is going to land. If ever a show earned the right to phone it in, it's that one. But they yeah. just don't. They really do say, "We got to need. we're going to need more time on this episode. Mm-hmm. We're going to wait and hold it back and do some more work on it. And I'm thrilled to be a part of that. The fact that they that you're not allowed to come in with a with a who cares attitude, yeah. you know, because no one else is going to have that attitude. So I love that. Man, I could talk to you a whole nother hour about what
0: to do and how to stay in this thing, and I think we should. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, how can people find you on social media and tune into the tips that you give on your Twitter feed and all that stuff? Because you've been doing right. quite a bit of that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I call them VO notes. I just yeah. made these little one, two, three-minute long videos. I just look at the camera and just share... A tip or two about some facet of voiceover. And I have those on YouTube. So I have a YouTube channel. It's just Chris Edgerly. And I also have uh, Twitter. So you can find me at Chris Edgerly on Twitter. And I kind of limit it to that. I have a website as well, ChrisEdgerly.com. So everything, the hub of what I do is ChrisEdgerly.com. But you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on YouTube. Feel free to drop in, make a comment. It doesn't have to be positive. I don't care. <laughs> You know, I mean, people tend to be positive, but yeah, but then, you know, every
0: once in a while, you're gonna get someone who's gonna throw some mud at you. And uh...
1: as you know, I've done anime, and man, yeah. if you wanna, if you wanna get some shade thrown at you, <laughs> just do a character that they know already, and someone will find fault with you. Oh man, oh yeah, will they ever? You'll also get a lot of love, That's but yeah, great. at Chris Edgerly and ChrisEdgerly.com. That's awesome, dude. Thank you so much for coming My in and spending some
0: time this afternoon. Yeah, to be it flew here. by and it truly did and yeah. uh, and thank you for listening and there'll be more episodes coming soon uh, thanks for tuning in uh, thanks again to Juice Studios for making another uh, marvelous episode thank you Scott and uh, we'll talk to you soon peace this has been All Over voiceover with Kif VH. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and give us a positive rating. It truly helps. Follow me on Twitter, at Kif VH, or on Instagram, at Kif VH, or on Vero, at Kif VH. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon. Claim victory and depart the field. Werewolf? There.